beloved, if you don't know me yet, it's too late. <laughs> two, two more sermons with you. It has been just an unspeakable privilege to share God's word with you this summer. Next week, we'll look at prayer. And today, we want to do 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 15. Paul writes, by the infallible inspiration of God's spirit, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. When a new coach takes over an athletic team, you hear sometimes something like this at the press conference. Well, we're going to change the culture of that locker room. And what the coach means is by his presence, his personality, his priorities, his passion, his principles, things are going to look different. They're going to reflect who he is. The team will. How much more so when the Lord Jesus Christ creates a community of his people by his spirit? Everything he touches gets better. When God brings together a church, desperate, helpless sinners, saved and rescued by his grace, it looks different. And if it was ever the case, it was in Thessalonica. If I had time, I'd walk you through the, whole, the, uh, the entire epistle again and, and show you specifically. But let me just point out to you three places where he says, just as you are doing. He commends them for their love in chapter 4, just as you're doing. He commends them for walking according to God's commands, just as you're doing. And last week, we saw at the end of the message in uh, chapter 5, verse 11, he says, encourage one another just as you're doing. So then the next thing Paul does, beginning in verse 12 in our text, is he fleshes out what it looks like when a culture of one-anothering and encouraging is manifested. What does it look like? He leaves nothing to your imagination. He spells it out for you in verses 12 to 15. So here's how we're going to answer the question. when it's manifested, how does a culture of encouraging one another, what does it look like? The first thing that's evident is respect and esteem for your leaders. And he's referencing the office of elder. In our polity, our church government, we recognize the office of elder of two flavors, teaching elders like Murray, Fritz, and me, and ruling elders like the dear men who have other jobs but volunteer their time to serve and to shepherd you. That's what he's referring to. So it means this, when Paul comes and plants a church, as he did in Thessalonica, he's teaching them the gospel, he's teaching them the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ, and before he leaves, he ensures that in his absence, 
they have elected, they've appointed, they have in some way put in place leaders, men who will shepherd the flock. So notice verse 12. He says, we ask you, brothers and sisters, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of the work. I'm not sure whether he's just saying that in principle because it's the right thing to do or whether there's an underlying reason that he's heard about that they may, that people in the church may be tempted not to esteem and respect the leaders. I don't know. Irregardless, as we say down south, there are two specific obligations for you, the people of this church. See the first one? You respect your leaders for the nature of their office. He says they're over you in the Lord and admonish you. The nature of their office is Jesus has given you, among many gifts, the privilege, the, 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 the sacred duty of responding to the leadership of elders. So in a sense, it answers this idea themselves to care for your souls by the word of God. And if necessary, Paul says, admonish you. That literally means to put into mind. And presumably, good elders are always only wanting to put into your mind what is true biblically to save you from yourself and for Jesus. Your elders strive and pray and labor and meet and deliberate ultimately, that good would come to you. So then Paul says, I want you to esteem them, not just respect, but he says, esteem them for the quality of their labors. Esteem them very highly in love for their labors. So what does that imply? You can see the work they're doing among you. That's not always the case. There's a lot of meetings where your elders are praying, they're having meetings, but you ought to be able to see the ways that they're shepherding and here's what I've found in about 40 years of pastoral experience. When that respect is earned versus demanded, when it is earned by their example versus demanded, you can't help but respond in love for these men, for their labors. I thank the Lord publicly for the, for the elders of this church. I know they love you. I hear them pray for you every Sunday morning when I come in. I hear their heart. God has given you very wonderful men to shepherd you. That's one of the things that's evident, that's manifested when Jesus comes and creates a culture of encouragement. Now this last part will be in a little bit more detail. The second thing that's evident are what I'm just calling graces that reveal the gospel, and here they are. Number one, peace. Verse 13, Paul says, be at peace with one another. I've always wondered, slight sidebar, I've always wondered if, you know, when Paul exhorts you, the congregation, to esteem your leaders and respect your leaders, if the very next thing out of his mouth is answering the question, okay, what's the greatest gift we, the congregation, can give our leaders as we esteem them and love? It's we live at peace with each other. We live at peace with each other. So why does he need to tell them to be at peace with one another? Well, think of their situation. They're being persecuted. And when you're in a foxhole next to somebody and the bullets are flying over your head, guess what? You gotta get along. 
You've got to be at peace with each other. You belong to each other. This is how Paul reasons it as we, the body of Christ, are united to one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. The members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. And so here's the reality. Relationships done well are hard. It's challenging. Relationships are messy. We struggle with our own sin, and we have the potential to hurt one another. And let me propose that one of the reasons we might fail to do relationships well is we simply forget or don't use the principles that make relationships thrive. For example, and in the outline I've given you four, one, we tend to forget that God is looking for, in our relationships, a reflection of the unity that exists in the Godhead. So actually, when I pray for people, and I pray for your elders, and I, I pray for Murray and Addie and Fritz and um, Ami, I pray that they'll have relational health and such that, that reflects the glory of the love the Godhead has in itself. That's what's at stake in the way you care for each other, your kids, your spouse. We're called to reflect tangibly on earth in our relationships this beautiful unity that's in the Godhead itself. Another principle that we tend to forget, we're all broken from our past relationships and we have to deal with the ways we have responded in sin to our own past and relationships. For example, everyone in the room is wired, has learned to respond sinfully to their own brokenness in one of at least three big ways. You either crave approval, you crave control, or you can cra crave being right. The idols of an excessive need to be liked, to be in control, and to be in the right. Do you know which is your idol? If you don't, it is hurting your relationships. I have to tell you that in love. So you, you, you need to be battling the ways sin has wrecked your own relational style so that it doesn't hurt your relationships. One other principle, relationships work best on humility. Years ago, someone gave me a lawnmower, push mower, and it's the kind that runs on a mixture of gas and oil. You know what those are? Like, curse the person who invented those, because why not just put gas in, right? So, sorry, that was a little strong. But I needed to cut my grass, and all I had was gas. And I was so tempted just to use the gas, because I didn't know where to get the oil. I didn't know where to buy it. I who sells it? Who knows? I don't know. But I couldn't do it because I knew I would ruin the lawnmower. It wasn't built to run on just gas. Just like relationships are built to run on love, obviously, and humility, not so obviously. One of the verses I often pray on myself is 1 Peter 5.6, where Peter says, clothe yourselves all of you, with humility toward one another. That's a command. You ought to be doing that daily. And it's so vivid. The verb, the verb for clothes referred to a servant taking up an apron and tying it around his or her waist. 
Because what, what does that mean? It means humility is a posture of serving, and servants, by definition, have their eyes directed to whom? Themselves or other people? To others. We're called daily, for the sake of our relationships, to put on a servant's apron and look to meet the needs of others. And one other principle here, we are not always aware of the impact we have on other people. So what do you like when you don't get your own way in a relationship? Are you aware of the impact that has on another person? When are you most dangerous relationally? Is it when you're profoundly insecure and you don't know it? Is it when you're absolutely convinced you're in the right? Let's suppose you are in the right, and the other person, you just know they're in the wrong. We'll grant you that. Slow down, take a breath, gather yourself, get out the ruler, the golden ruler. Jesus said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Let me just conclude this piece by saying the obvious. If you're ultimately not at peace with God, you'll never be at peace with human beings relationally. Where do you find peace with God? You find your heart resting in the love of Jesus Christ. You find your heart vivified, made alive, made new, your heart washed, your heart served, your heart cherished in the tender, gentle heart of Jesus Christ who went to war on the cross for your sins and won the victory for you that is yours by mercy and grace. When you're at peace with God, only then can you have a glimmer of hope of being at peace with other people. That's one of the graces that's evident in a community. Paul says, just as you're doing, you're encouraging one another. Here's another grace, provision. When God meets our needs, as he loves to do, he gives us what we need. Our relationships model that care for one another. Look at verse 14. We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idol, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. You could call this individualized one-anothering. And so Paul lays out three simple case studies. He knows that in, in a church our size, there are going to be at least three kinds of people. There are going to be people that are idle, those who are faint-hearted, and those who are weak. And you tailor your care for them according to what they need. So, for example, the idle. They're neglecting their duties. There are probably people in this case who say, I'm not going to work. Jesus is coming tomorrow. They're forfeiting their responsibilities. And Paul says, you don't come along and pat them on the back. You challenge them. You admonish them. You come alongside and you say, buddy, there's a better way to live. Your neglect of your duty is not only hurting you, it's hurting other people around you. So the, 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 um, the idol, they need admonishing. It's good for them. It's the loving thing to do. Case study two, the faint-hearted. It literally is the little-souled. What do they need? Do they need admonishing? 
No, they're faint-hearted. They need encouragement. Maybe these are people in Thessalonica who've lost a loved one, who are confused doctrinally. They're worried about their future. They're, they're, uh, they're feeling the threats of persecution. They need people to come along and sit with them and listen and love and console and comfort. Third case study, the weak. What do they need? Do they need admonishing? Do they need comfort? Paul says they need. Obviously, the weak need help. It's a beautiful picture. This picture is, when it says help them, he's saying stand in front of them. And it seems to convey that the weak are about ready to keel over from the, from the overwhelming power of temptation. Sexual, financial, relational, being lazy, being critical, whatever. We help the weak. Do you see the point? And, and really, Murray's already alluded to it in the way he's led you this morning. A healthy community is one where you're free to be weak. You're free to be frail. You're free to be a sinner. Because we all are. So we don't need to pretend differently. Third grace. What happens when the spirit of Jesus transforms a community? Graces are manifested. You, you can tell. Third one, patience. Verse 14. Be patient with all. Why do we need to be patient with each other? Well, for starters, we're all slow to change. Remember that bumper sticker from the 70s, please be patient with me, God isn't finished with me yet. Anybody remember that one? Or was that just in Northern Virginia where I was growing up? Yeah. Okay. We're all slow to change. Secondly, we're all quick to forget how patient God is with us. Sit in that for a while sometime, beloved. Just think how patient God is with you. Thirdly, we're often the last person to see our blind spots. And so the key to patience Jesus gave you in Matthew 7, when he said, before you inspect the speck in someone else's eye, take what out of your own? The log. He said one of the indicators of pride out of control is you can find tiny little specks in people's eyes all the while looking past this log in your own. Go logging first. Look in your own heart. Deal ruthlessly with all the ways your pride keeps you from being everything God has made you to be. So you have to wonder if our impatience is not born out of a sense of superiority feeling ourselves better than other people. So let's suppose you're in a situation where you really are better. <laughs> let's just suppose that. This person's a mess, and you're not a mess. Ultimately, what does that mean? It means that you've received more grace from the hand of Jesus to make you in a better place than they are. Right? Wouldn't you be Hitler if not for the grace of God? Do you believe that? You would. I would. But for the grace of God. So the only reason I might be in a better place than somebody else 
is the restraining hand of the grace of God. That will create patience. And serious gospel-born patience will break out in what I like to call perpetual patience prayer. And here's the prayer. It's very simple. Lord, given the fact that I'm the greatest threat to the welfare of my relationships, please keep my sin from ruining them. That's the prayer. Given the fact that I am the greatest threat to the welfare of my marriage, not my wife, I'm the greatest threat to the welfare of my marriage, please keep my sin from ruining the relationship. And does Jesus not always answer that prayer? That is the grace that comes to the weak that Marie alluded to earlier in the service. He runs in, and people who are weak, who know they have nothing, and when they run to Jesus, they're showered with grace, with understanding, with compassion, with patience, with mercy. And man, where that grace goes, it never stays. It always overflows to those around you. That's a perpetual patience prayer. Given I am the greatest threat to the welfare of my relationship, keep my sin from ruining it. Write that down. Pray that prayer every day. Here's the last grace. We are saying that when Jesus transforms the culture of the church locker room, things are manifested. Things become clear. Graces are produced by the gospel, by the Spirit of God. Here's the last one. Protection. And that's verse 15. Love is always protective. And Paul is acknowledging something here, and that is when people get do bad to you, what is the impulse of your heart? To get back. Remember this book long ago? Don't get mad, get even. Yeah, how pagan is that? How utterly unbiblical is that? How atrocious in the heart of Jesus is that? If you hurt me, I'll hurt you. That's why he writes in verse 15. Don't repay evil for evil. He's warning you about the power of a grudge, holding an offense. I read somewhere a person who said, the only people you should try to get even with are those who help you. Isn't that great? The only people you want to try to get even with are people who help you. So beloved, love is very narrow. Love is very focused Love is very particular. Love has a stringent aim, and that is always seek to do good for one another and for all. What a great functional definition of love. If somebody says to you, oh, you're a Christian, you're supposed to love, right? Right. Well, tell me what love is. Don't say it's a feeling. Say love is a commitment to do what is best for that other person if even in the face of their worst. Love asks what is good for them. It has the standard of the Bible in the back of your mind. That's the only way you know what is good for a human being. The Bible tells you. And using that standard, the love looks at that person in their situation and it queries, what do they need that is good for them? What will truly promote their greatest glory? That's how you know you're loving when you're asking that question. What will promote their greatest glory? 
Do you know when that question was first asked in human history? Jesus asked his father sometime in eternity, Father, you are going to give me a family to enjoy forever, a brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue, a family from Adam's ruined humanity, a family of people who are our enemies. Lord, what will promote their greatest glory? How will you bring that to pass? And the father said to his son, we must rescue them. We must ransom them. We must redeem them. We must reconcile them. We must restore them. We must renew them. We must reclaim them. And this is exactly what Jesus came to do through his cross. The father said to his son, what's best for the welfare of the people we want is that you sacrifice your welfare. And this Jesus so willingly did to make you a treasure and a trophy of his grace. He gave himself to the cross. He took what you deserved. He bore the shame. You were the prize. And when your heart sits in that sacrificial love, it will transform your commitment to do what is good for your loved one's and for all. Do you know the sacrificial love of Jesus for you? It puts a smile on your heart. It gets your feet moving. It makes your hands active. Because those forgiven much love much. Let me pray for you. We are indeed Lord Jesus forgiven much and far more than we know. The cost of our redemption. Let us survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Let us sit in it, ponder it, and our hearts be transformed by the love of God poured out into them by the Holy Spirit. Please, I beg you, Lord, give Redeemer a culture of encouragement in one another. Protect, preserve their elders. Use them wonderfully. May they shepherd mightily, faithfully, humbly in the stead of Jesus over this flock and enrich this church with the robust, unfailing, eternal love of Christ. In his name I pray, amen.